Our scripture reading for today is found in Exodus chapter 14, verses 1 through 31. Please follow along while I read. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihiroth, between Mijdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden the Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people. And they said, What is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pihiroth in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness." And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians, who you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the... Lord, in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic. Clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily, the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord drew the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the Lord of Israel 
But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, and the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this text, this great story in the Bible. And we need to hear it and be reminded today because we are tempted to fear. We're tempted to panic. We're tempted to say things that would be almost embarrassing. And we're looking this morning for you to be able to speak to us through your word. So would you do that today, please, God? Use your word, use our time here and the power of the Holy Spirit to give us exactly what we need today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Exodus is not about Israel. It's not about Moses. It's not about Pharaoh. It's not about Egypt. The book of Exodus is fundamentally about God. And in particular, it's about God's display of his glory. Now, he's going to use Israel. He's going to use their deliverance from Egypt. He's going to use Pharaoh. He's going to use the crushing of the Egyptian army. But at the end of the day, the story of Exodus is about God making his name known over all the earth. It's about God being renowned. In fact, in an earlier chapter of Exodus, we saw God say this to the people of Israel. He said, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And here's why. That and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So, God's aim in the deliverance of Egypt, or deliverance of Israel out of Egypt, his purpose in all of this is to make his name known. So far in our journey through Exodus, we've seen in chapters 1 to 6 that God is a God who hears. He heard the cry of the people Israel. And then we saw in chapters 7 through 12 that God is a God who delivers. We saw God deliver the people of Israel out of Egypt by strong acts of judgment, particularly through the ten plagues, which not only brought them out of their slavery, but also made a definitive statement about the one true God. We're turning now to this next section called The God Who Provides, and this will bring us right up to the foot, the base of Mount Sinai, where God will give his law to his people. And what we're going to see in this text over the next number of weeks, not only in Exodus 14, which you also saw in Exodus 13 last week, well, all the way through chapter 18, is that God is able not only to deliver his people, but he's also able to provide for them. He sends them out of Egypt, and the question is, will God now take care of his people? Sure, he's done a great thing in delivering them and releasing them from slavery, but the question is now, will God take care of them? And that's a very important question. What we're going to see today is the introduction of this particular theme that a God who delivers is a God who will provide. In other words, God is going to take care of his people. They're his people. Last week, Pastor Nate showed you that in terms of the consecration of the the firstborn son, the feast of unleavened bread, and especially in regards to the presence of God by virtue of that pillar of cloud and fire, those things all demonstrate that Israel belongs to God. They are his precious possession. God didn't deliver them in order to abandon them. He didn't redeem them only to desert them. That God, at the end of the day, is going to provide for them. But what we're going to see 
something that Israel will struggle with, no doubt something that you and I struggle with, and that is that it is not an easy lesson to remember or learn that God really is going to take care of you. The dust of the Exodus has hardly even settled, and Israel faces a huge test at the bank of the Red Sea. And the question is this, can God really be trusted? Will he really take care of us? Is he really going to help us? Was, was the Exodus event an anomaly? Will God really provide? And my guess is that you can relate to each and every one of those questions. I know I can. See, the problem in my life is no doubt, no doubt probably like the same problem in yours, is that is that even though God has proven himself faithful and faithful and faithful over and over again, there are times in my life where it is a real challenge to have faith and believe that God really is going to take care of me. And there are times when I need to be reminded of what Exodus 14 says, fear not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. And my prayer for you today is there's some of you, I have to believe that you're in the middle of a really significant crisis. In fact, you've reached for the panic button, maybe even the eject button. Let's you resonate with the psalmist, oh, that I had wings like a dove and could fly away to the mountain. And you have dreams of where that is. You just want to run away. And today I want you to hear from God's word the beauty of what it means to fear not, to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. So we're going to see four lessons that are going to come out of this text. We're going to walk through the story and see what we can learn. The first lesson is this in verses 1 to 4. We find that God is in control. What's amazing is that God orders the steps of Israel and puts the nation right where he wants her to be, even though it's incredibly vulnerable. We, we left um, the Israelites in chapter 13 in verse 20. If you notice, it says that they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. So they're approaching the wilderness, verse 21, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. So God is clearly leading them. They come up to the edge of the wilderness, and then a strange thing happens in chapter 14. The Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back. So they're heading towards the wilderness, And God says to Moses, tell the people to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Haharoth between Migdal and the sea. And we don't know exactly where these cities are, nor do we know exactly where the, the Red Sea crossing happened. But the point of this little section is this, that Israel is heading a particular direction, and God says, no, wait a minute, I want to reposition you, and I'm going to put you right in front of the Red Sea. Now, if you had a military mind, or if you could kind of put two and two together and get four, kind of look at the equation, you might think, you know what, this is a really bad place to be. We've been redirected, and on our backside is the Red Sea. The wilderness is over here, and Egypt is this direction. If something bad happens, there's no real good place to go. And yet God providentially places the people exactly where he wants them. He puts them in that very spot. And the reason is is that God has lots of goals 
Lots of intentions, lots of purposes that are happening, even in regards to where he positions them. First, he knows that word will get back to Pharaoh that Israel's journey appears to have taken a misstep and that they seem to be lost. Look at verse 3. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land and the wilderness has shut them in. So God has a goal here and that is to send Pharaoh a message. The, The second thing is that this location will provide the context for what will come next. The people of Israel are going to be set right in front of that Red Sea, and this will be the second greatest deliverance in Israel's history. This will become a defining moment, and so God is positioning them and setting them up for a wonderful moment. But at the time, they don't know what's going to happen. And third, the ultimate end game is for God to glorify himself. Look at verse 4. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So understand, when God says to Israel, you're going to go camp here, there are multiple goals that God has in that particular moment. He wants to send Pharaoh a message. He wants to position the people of Israel right where they can have really great seats to see what's about to happen. And, and as well, he wants to get glory from this situation. And I find that incredibly helpful to be reminded that, you know what, God always has multiple goals for every situation in life. There are lots of things that are happening, most of which I can't really see. And so when challenging circumstances come or difficult effects happen in our lives it's good to be reminded that god has aims that are far beyond what we could even possibly imagine what happens is that this location will become the nexus of israel's faith egypt's defeat and god's glory now we we can see this we know it's going to happen because we just heard the story but in the middle of this moment israel has no idea that god has positioned them for them to be able to see an unbelievable deliverance. What I find comforting in this first section in Exodus 14 is to know that God sovereignly directed the Israelites to this very location. And it's comforting to know that even hard circumstances in life have divine purposes behind them. In other words, God is always orchestrating the events of our lives, even putting us in difficult and challenging, even scary positions. And while we may never fully understand the reasons behind all the circumstances of our lives, we can take comfort in the fact that nothing, even the trials of this life, are out of God's control. You hear me? There is nothing going on in your life right now that is beyond God's ability to control. There's nothing happening in your life that is by random chance and as though God has forgotten about you. There's nothing happening in your life right now that is outside of God's ability to direct it. Even the hardships, even the difficulties, and the fact of the matter is, even though you're not in control, you can rest knowing that God is. I've often taken comfort in this thought. I haven't learned this lesson easily. It's come through pain, come through difficulty, and it's one I'm still learning But when hardships come and I just wonder, what in the world is this about? I think this thought, I pray this prayer, God, I don't know how this fits in your plan for my life, but I'm going to rest in the fact that you're in control and I'm going to rest in the fact that somehow this fits your purposes for me and I know they are for my good. 
Because there's a lot of hard things that come, and I'm sure, like you, like me, wonder how in the world does this fit? This seems like a huge detour. This seems like an, this is an enormous waste of time, and yet those are the things that you can rest and trust, that God positions his people right by the Red Sea. Yeah, it doesn't look good. It looks like this is really a bad idea. This is really a bad circumstance that has happened. And it's a moment that God is going to show up in a glorious way. So the first lesson from this text, number one, God is in control. Here's the second one. And that is this. Do not panic. Say that with me. Do not panic. Any panickers in the room? Yeah. Panickers unite. It's better to be scared together. That's what it is. So, The second thing that emerges in, in this text is the way in which Israel quickly embraces a heart of fear and panic. I mean, they've just come out of Egypt. They've seen God decimate the most powerful nation on earth at the time, and they're coming out of Egypt, and how quickly they jump back into fear. Fear can so quickly compromise our faith, even though you know better, even though you've seen what God can do. It just takes one additional circumstance and suddenly you're right back in the fight of faith. In Israel's defense, they have good reason to be afraid. The armies of Egypt is... Fast approaching. Verses 5 to 9 tell us that Pharaoh regretted letting Israel go, so he summoned his army. Verses uh, 6 to 7 says, So he made his chariot, made ready his chariot, and took his army with him. That word chariot probably doesn't have a lot of emotional um, baggage for you. It didn't create any kind of fear, but in Israel's day, that was like he, um, he assembled his F 16 fighter group, he assembled his SEAL, SEAL Team 6. He put together his nuclear missiles, whatever, you know, whatever thing would be like, whoa, that's a serious deal. Here's what happens. They assemble his chariots, took his army with them. He took 600 chosen chariots, so it's not like the B team. This is the A team. And all the other chariots of Egypt and the officers over all of them. So the idea is this is a serious force that's coming out. Remember, Israel's departure was a national security threat for Egypt, so they want those people back. Verse 8 reminds us that God is at work in all of this behind the scenes. The text says about his hardening of Pharaoh's heart. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. Verse 9, the Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them. So all of this, though, is to set up what comes next. That's all the setup. The focus of the text shifts from Pharaoh and where the people are encamped to the people of Israel and their emotional response. Look at verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Notice the progression. The people of Israel saw, they lifted up their eyes, so they, they beheld something, something circumstantial right in front of them. They then feared, secondly, and third, they cried out to the Lord. Now that word cry is an important word in Exodus because we saw it all the way back in Exodus chapter 2 when the Bible says that God heard the cry of Israel. It was their cry that caused God to be motivated to deliver them from slavery in the first place. And now the people are crying out to him again, but they're crying out to him not because of slavery, because of fear of what might happen to them. 
this text and this section is a signature moment in Israel's life and it will be repeated again and again and again and again. Even though God has delivered them in a mighty way, circumstances change and their hearts crumble with fear. Even though God was working behind the scenes, even though He had proved Himself over and over and over to be trustworthy, even though He had fulfilled every single one of His promises, what they saw in front of them was powerful enough to trump all of that. Do you resonate with that? I mean, you could come away from a Sunday morning so full of the things of God. So you're singing great and glorious truths, and then Monday morning show up at work, get an email, and you're like, oh, it's over. It's over. God's forgotten about me. You have some great moment in the Word, and your quiet time in the morning, you go to work, and your boss, or just your kids, they start acting horribly wicked, and you're like, they're, they're going to kill somebody, I'm telling you. And you're just like, it's over. It's, I, I've completely failed. You ever? Some of you may not be like that. You may live with someone like that. I want to show you how to deal with that person in a really helpful way. Israel's fear quickly becomes an irrational blame game. Look at what they say, verse 11. I love, sometimes the Bible is just, just downright f- funny. And I, I think this is just funny in a, in a kind of funny way. So verse 11 and 12, it says this. The, the people say to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Okay, so at this point, you want to go, smack! Yeah, that's why, because there's a grave problem, right? I mean... Yeah, that, that's it. That, that's it. Yeah, there's no graves. So, yeah. I mean, so what is this? This is just, this is just downright sarcasm. And I love the fact that Moses put this in there. Secondly, what have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Newsflash, I didn't bring you out. God did, right? But yet the people are blaming Moses. And then third, and this is my favorite, this is the I told you so response, right? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Now Moses, who calls himself in other parts of the Bible the meekest man on the face of the earth, which he must have been because you and I would have been wringing these folks' necks at this point, recognizes that these are panicked statements. People are filled with fear. They say, we're going to die. You're going to kill us. We told you this what, what was going to happen. But you need to know that the reason that they're saying all of this is because what we see in verse 12. Here's what's going on inside of their soul. They say something like this, For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. What? Now that word serve, another really important word. It's a pivotal word in Exodus because God says to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son, let him go that he may serve me. In other words, the battle in the ten plagues was over who was Israel going to serve. Are they going to serve Pharaoh? Do they belong to him? Or do they belong to God? Are they going to serve God? And so what the people are in effect saying is, yeah, we bought into this idea that Yahweh is the God that we could serve, and that didn't turn out well, so let's go back and serve Pharaoh. And you know how quickly our hearts can go that road? You come clean, you start dealing with your sin issues and start trying to live a righteous life and then the enemy just throws everything in the spiritual kitchen sink at you and it hurts when you get hit by all those things and you think, oh yeah, so this is what it means to follow Jesus? I'm going to go back. Start 
repairing your marriage and start getting things back on track and then things get really hard, really difficult. And then, you know, let's just go back to the way it was before. It's a lot easier. We're just both being self-centered all the time. You have to work so hard. The temptation is to want to go back. And the reason why this is recorded in the Bible is to remind us that God is worthy to be trusted even when challenging circumstances come. I mean, I'm sure that you, like, like I have, had time in your life, times in your life when it's really tempting to give in to fearful panic. Situations and circumstances that are just scary. And you know what I found? There's a couple things that I've, I've learned and tried to apply in my life. Here's one. I, I remind myself that just because I feel something doesn't make it true. You know what I found? The older I get, the less I trust my emotions. They're a funny sort in my soul. They're like two-year-old children, always whining and saying things and complaining. And sometimes you just need to tell your emotions, sit down and be quiet. Right? Just sit down and be quiet. I'm tired of listening to you. You're so loud and you have, you're excited and you're sad and da 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 And sometimes, you know, you seem to be reminded, just because I feel something doesn't mean it's true. Just because I'm panicked doesn't mean I should be. Just because I'm afraid doesn't mean it's justified. Secondly, I rehearse what God has done. I preach to my two-year-old emotions and tell them, sit down, be quiet, and listen to the Word of God. Sometimes I've taken and actually written out, here's all the evidences that God has answered prayers on a particular issue, and I'll go back and rehearse those things to remind myself, you know what, God has taken care of me. And third, I choose by faith to believe that God has purposes for me beyond what I can see. And while those circumstances may not be easy, I bank my heart and my life on the fact that God always has my best in mind. And although I don't always know what that is or what that looks like. So I have to move beyond what I see and what I feel to what I believe. Third. So first we have this idea of God's in control. Secondly, do not panic. Third, live by faith. Exodus fourteen thirteen. This is one of my favorite texts in all of the Bible. Moses says to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord. This is an anchor text for me. You have those in your Bible? Verses that you know. Man, God gave me this verse at a particular time in my life. For me, it was 1996. Our twins had just been born. A senior pastor had left. I was being considered for the pastorate of my uh, former church, and it was going through the candidating process. It was a very interesting experience in church life, and uh, this was the passage that I began anchoring my soul to because there's a lot of things to be afraid of. There's a lot of things to fear. Fear not. Moses confronts the root issue with his people. They're afraid. Sometimes, especially if you live with somebody who struggles with fear, not only do they get afraid, but you get afraid that they're getting afraid. And sometimes the best thing you can do is just to remind yourself, you know what, the reality is they're just afraid. They're just afraid. You can't solve it intellectually. The thing you can do is just simply point them to the beautiful realities of what it means, secondly, to stand firm. Although it's scary... Israel is in the safest place possible. They're right where God wants them to be. Oh, sure, the army's coming close, and in a moment things are going to get really tense, but they've got really good seats to see what's going to happen. Third, 
Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord. They are going to see the way in which God is going to deliver His people. He is about to give them a gift. He's about to show them how much He loves them, how much He cares for them. But you know what? You can't really be able to see that beautiful gift unless you're close enough to smell the smoke of God's judgment. You have to be close enough to be able to see how how close this thing came to be able to see how good and how gracious God is. I love verse 14. It says, The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. What a statement, and what a lesson. You know the storyline of Exodus, and for that matter, the storyline of the whole Bible, is this, the Lord fights for you. In fact, the greatest demonstration of this, linked to the Red Sea deliverance, is the way in which the Lord fought for us at the cross through Christ. I mean, the message of the Bible is that you can't fix the things that are going on. Israel couldn't fix the situation with the Egyptian army. The odds were overwhelmingly against them, and God comes and fights the battles for them. The Bible paints a really dark and hopeless picture of the condition of humanity in the New Testament in particular, telling us that we're dead in our trespasses and sin, we have no hope without God, and that the only hope for someone in terms of the forgiveness of their sins is that they need God to fight for them or to apply, in the New Testament case, Jesus' death to our account in order for forgiveness to be possible. So the message of the Bible essentially is you can't do it on your own. You need God to fight for you. Colossians 2 says this, He set this aside, meaning the debt of record. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, putting them to an open shame by triumphing over them. Meaning that Jesus triumphs over the things that are our enemies, primarily that being our own sin. But then the Bible continues on even further because many people think that that's just a one-time sort of decision that someone makes to receive Christ, and certainly it's a one-time decision. But the reality is God continues to fight your battles for you and with you and through you for the rest of your life. Listen to Romans 8.31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, you belong to God. You've received Christ as your Savior. You belong to him. He poured out his judgment on his son. You think he can't take care of your job? He poured out judgment on his own son. You think he can't take care of a broken relationship? You think he can't take care of the financial challenges that you're in? He's able to graciously give you all things, that there's nothing that can separate you from his love. And the fight of faith is not only to receive Christ once, but to continually to apply the gospel to our life every single day so that you get up and say, you know what, God helping me today, I can deal with the issues that are in front of me. That there is nothing that will crush me. There is nothing that will defeat me. Everything is a part of God's providential plan. I may not understand it all. I may certainly not like it all. But at the end of the day, I know the God who controls it all. God is going to glorify himself. He's going to do it by the destruction of the Egyptian army, but he's also going to glorify himself by proving once again that he is worthy to be trusted. But Israel has to sit on the bank of the Red Sea and watch Pharaoh and the army approach and wonder what in the world's going to happen here. And that's a moment where they're called to live by faith. Maybe a moment 
like you're in today where God's calling you to live by faith. And make no mistake about it, there's, there's no coincidence that you're here today. Last night I was texting with a couple that my wife and I had been praying for and looking for a particular answer to prayer, and they're right on the cusp. I mean, they're, they're hours away from an answer to a huge prayer in their life. And I was texting them and said, Hey, tomorrow I'm speaking on Exodus 14, and my favorite verse in that passage is, Fear not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. And I'm praying that over you. And they sent me a text back with a picture of a yellow sticky note and said, You're not going to believe this, but this sticky note has been on the dashboard of my car for the number of months, and you're never going to believe what verse it was. It was the exact same verse. Isn't that lucky? <laughs> That's God, right? That's God showing up, confirming in their heart, confirming in my heart, confirming in your heart today. The reality is that He has us exactly where He wants us, and God uses His Word to bring comfort and hope. God uses His Word to remind us, you know what, nothing can separate you from my love, and I'm ready to give you all things, so just rest and trust, and get your hand off the panic button. Fourth, and finally, the text shows us the way in which God moves. You know what's crazy? Is that God creates a path through the very thing they thought was an impossible barrier. He doesn't bring them around the Red Sea. He doesn't bring them to defeat Egypt. He brings them through the Red Sea. Look at verse 22. The people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on the right and on their left. Can you imagine this moment? I mean, as they're walking through, they're like, wow, I hope that doesn't come down, right? I mean, it's just you're walking through, they're on dry ground, and God had provided a way. Verses 23 to 25, we see the Egyptians begin to pursue them. They went in after them in the midst of the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord and the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic. Now, there's a, here's, they're justifiable in their, in their panic clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Oh, wouldn't it be great to be known as the kind of people for whom the Lord fights the battles? The Egyptians sense that they're in real danger. Once again, God is working on Israel's behalf, but now here comes the definitive judgment Verse 26, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. Remember that it was the Egyptians who threw the Israelite babies into the Nile. Is God's judgment on them. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, and not one of them remained. And with this, God makes a signature statement. Look at verse 29. But the people of Israel, but the people of Israel, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall of them on the right and on their left. The Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Verse 31. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and His servant Moses. Parenthesis, for now. 
because they're going to struggle in the future. But on this day, oh, this is a good day. They have seen the Lord deliver. They have seen and they believe in the Lord and they believe in Moses, but the reality is their faith is going to leak just like our faith leaks. And so we have great confidence what the Lord's going to do, and then you go away from assembly of God's people over six days and your faith barometer begins to leak. You come back and you sing and get it ramped back up again to believe, yes, the Lord is for me. He's not against me. Everything's going to work together for good. I can trust Him. I believe in what He's going to do in my life. The moment will not last forever in Israel's heart, just like it doesn't last forever in your heart. The fact of the matter is, beloved, it is a daily fight to believe. It's a daily fight To be able to say, God, I believe that you can control all these circumstances in life is a daily fight to say, God, I have faith to believe that you have my best intentions in mind. It may be that you're here today and the fact of the matter is is that you've had hard circumstances in your life and the whole reason for that is because God wants you to hear one singular message. You can't do your life on your own anymore. You need Jesus to help you. And today needs to be a day of conversion. And maybe you're here today and the fact of the matter is you're here in this message in the midst of a major crisis in your life. Maybe you've felt panic like you've never felt it in the last week. And it is by divine design that we're on this text, on this day, for you to hear this from the Lord. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. Stop trying to manipulate and control and figure it all out. At the end of the day, do what you can, God helping you. But you got to, at the, at the end, say, God, this thing belongs to you. And when you doubt and when you fear, you come back to the gospel and being reminded that if God took care of your sin, he can take care of your job. If he took care of your sin, he can take care of your kids. If he took care of your sin, he can take care of your marriage. If he took care of your your, your sin, he can take care of your future. That the reality is that the God who delivers is a God who will provide. A God who delivers is a God who will provide. And some of you tonight need to lay your head on the pillow and say that statement, God, you have delivered and therefore I'm going to believe that you are going to provide. So don't fear stand still and see the salvation of the lord believe again don't fear be silent and see the salvation of the lord lord thank you that in the midst of red sea moments you show yourself to be strong and faithful and good in the midst of moments when we are filled with fear and panic you are patient with us So, Lord, help us when trouble comes on multiple fronts to not allow our hearts to run too far down a path of panic and fear. Help us to be wise, but help us to trust. Thank you that in Christ you dealt with the most deadly foe of all, our our sin. And everything after that is... Just grace upon grace upon grace. And so would you encourage my brothers and sisters today in whatever position in life you find them. And before we close, as we're just in a quiet moment of reflection, maybe you just need to take a moment and say to the Lord, God, help me not to fear. Help me to trust. Help me to believe. And help me tomorrow morning to keep fighting, to keep believing, to keep trusting. And by the way, if you need someone to pray for you at the end, there'll be some folks up here who'd like nothing more than to be able to pour God's grace over you and pray for his help 
in your life. So, Father, thank you that you hear our prayers, you know our needs, and you are our God who provides. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you, College Park. I love you.